Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Well, after a video like that, I don't need to say a thing. In fact, we just call it right now and everybody just say, okay, just think about that. That'll make you think. James chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, what is your life? Life is but a vapor, here for a little while, then vanishing away. Even if you live 70, 80, 90, even 100 years, it's just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. So what will you live for? You don't really get to choose how you're going to die or even when you're going to die, but you do get to choose how you're going to live and for what you'll live. And today I want you to think about the end and start living every day in view of the end and every decision in view of the end, the decision defines your destination, that one day we are going to stand before him, that we're going to stand in his very presence, and if you know him, that is a reason for joy, and if you don't, today is the day to get ready. We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, church, we are doing a line-by-line study of this ancient letter from the Apostle Paul to this ancient church of the first century, the church of Thessalonica. We have learned this was a church of irresistible influence. They had influence far beyond the region. They had a reputation. People were talking. They had this irresistible faith, hope, and love. And what's most amazing to me is they had this irresistible hope in the middle of desperation, great trial, tribulation, persecution, what seemed like this hopeless situation. They were full of great hope. And that's what I want to talk about today. They had this irresistible hope in Christ's second coming. They had hope that one day they knew they would stand with him in his very presence. And today, church, if you are convinced of Christ's resurrection, then you too, like the Thessalonians, can be certain of his return. See, we're not without hope in this world of despair. We're not without hope when hopelessness is in the air because if you're convinced as I am, Jesus came out of the grave and you might be asking, Phil, how can you be so certain that Jesus really rose from the dead? I'm telling you, I have done a personal examination of the evidence historically. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And if he did indeed rise from the dead, we can be certain that one day he will come again. And everything he said, it's true. And the Thessalonians were so certain of his resurrection, they were equally certain then of his return. The second coming is one of the core tenets of Christianity. It's what makes you a Christian that we believe Jesus will one day return to this earth. It was the night before he would die, the night before he'd be crucified. He said these words in John 14 and verse 1. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you unto myself to where I am, there you may be also. And the Thessalonians had hope because they were certain that what Jesus said was true, that one day he would come again and establish a kingdom that would be without suffering, for it would be without sin. Now, ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven, people have been trying to guess when he's coming, even though one of the last things Jesus said in Acts chapter one, when his disciples were asking, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what Jesus said in Acts chapter one? He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father alone has put in his authority. Jesus said, I come as a thief in the night. Like I'm not coming when a time you're gonna know when I'm coming. I'm not gonna send an email. I'm not gonna send a, a memo. Uh, just, just be ready because I'm coming. Even though Jesus said you won't know, people have been trying to figure out when he'll come. So um, just a few years ago, I remember driving around Lee Summit in the Kansas City area, maybe wherever you're watching from, you, you, you saw these billboards because there was a nationwide multi-million dollar billboard campaign that a very wealthy man paid for because he was convinced he'd figured out when Jesus was coming. This is one of the billboards from right here in Kansas City area. Save the date, return of Christ, May the 21st, 2011. And they were all over the nation. They were all over billboards in every single city, every single community. And I just kind of cringe every time I'd go buy one. You know what I'm saying? Because so many other people had, had figured out, I know when he's coming, even though Jesus said, no one will know. You have a website, we can know. When Jesus said, you can't know. And so every single time I've drive by one of these, I would just cringe. Can you imagine being this guy on May the 22nd, 2011? <laughs> Awkward. I just spent my fortune. And what's worse is it's a really bad optic for Christians. You understand that? It's just not a great look. And I remember actually the news, the, 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 the national news networks were carrying this story and the, the anchors would just kind of giggle. It's just not a great look. So here's what I'm trying to say today. The rest of this book, and even in the second book, Second Thessalonians, which we're going to start after this book, the First Thessalonians, it's all about the second coming and the signs and the seasons of the second coming. Why can we be certain we live in the season of the second coming? Though we cannot know the day or the hour, we can say we live in the season of the second coming. We're gonna be talking about that very thing, but I will promise we're not setting any dates, all right? We're not gonna set any dates. So if you think you have figured out when Jesus is coming again, would you just please not tell anybody? Because if you had it right, I promise Jesus is gonna change the date. So you get it wrong, all right? I'm just saying. Now, if you want to know more, I did a message. A year ago, we were in a verse-by-verse study, the book of Daniel. The last sermon in that series in Daniel is where I summarized all the prophecy of the end times that we have seen happen just in the last century. There's a reason we can say, you better be ready. There's a reason we can say we live in the season of the second coming. And if you scan that QR code, it'll take you right to that message. I think it was entitled, Hope Beyond the Scope of Impending Apocalypse, all right? Apocalypse, it just sounds really, really scary. Apocalypse simply means unveiling. Uh, we are living in a time where prophecy is being unveiled. And we can see things that Christians before us could have never fathomed, could never have imagined. And that message is where I summarize some of the prophecy related to Christ's second coming that has been fulfilled, some of which in our own lifetimes. 
The biggest question today, though, is not when Jesus is coming. The question is, are you ready for when you see him? Because what is certain is whether or not you're alive for Christ's second coming, there's coming a day you will die and you will go to him. Because life is a vapor. So the question is, are you ready when you close your eyes in time and open them up in eternity? That video we saw, for me, it's sobering. Because I've lived long enough now to know that life is a vapor. I cannot fathom how I got to be the age I am. I mean, 40. (laughs) I never dreamed I'd live to see 40. Hey, I've crossed the year of Jubilee. Let me just put it that way, okay? You got to know a little bit about your Bible, all right? The year of Jubilee's 50, all right? Now you know. Hey, here's the point. I never dreamed. I mean, really, how did I get here this fast? I mean, it is a vapor. It really is. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but statistically, most of us will not get to die like the man in the video. We all picture how it's going to end, at least, you know, in my mind's eye, I'm just like that guy, and I'm peacefully holding my wife's hand as I peacefully and tranquility pass off into eternity, and I get to say, honey, I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, that's what you think will happen, but you realize that probably won't happen. In fact, statistically, those under the sound of my voice, all the people watching right now from wherever you are in the world, statistically, not everyone who's listening to me in real time today will be here on this earth one week from today. There are some in this Lee Summit Auditorium will not be here seven days from now. You don't know. I'm just telling you, statistically, not all of us will even make it to see next week, much next year. We need to be ready at all times when we close our eyes in time and we open them up in eternity. You might think, well, Phil, I'm only 25. I've got all kinds of time. Yeah, that's what I used to think. Well, Phil, I'm only 37. Come on, I don't need to be thinking about this yet. Yeah, that's what I used to think. Everybody thinks that right to their 90th year and they wonder, how did it get here this fast? Every single one of us need to be ready, making every decision in view of the destination, one day we're going to see him. And that is how the Thessalonians were living. This is why they had this irresistible influence. They were courageous and they were contagious because they were living every day in view of the end. And they have some questions for the Apostle Paul. You remember this letter was written in response to a visit Timothy, Paul's partner in ministry, had made to them, to minister to them. Paul's now in Corinth, 300 miles away on the south side of Greece. Timothy has come back from Thessalonica. He has ministered to them and he's come back with some questions for the Apostle Paul. Remember, these were just a little fledgling Christians. Paul had only been there four weeks, and he taught them a lot, but hadn't taught them everything. And so they have some questions for Timothy to send to Paul when Timothy sees Paul. And now Paul is writing responses. Every once in a while, jump on a Facebook Live or Instagram, and, and we publish it ahead of time. You guys can send questions in, like ask me anything. And uh, I get to, in real time, answer those questions. But think about it. This was the age of snail mail, where literally they had people hand carry letters hundreds of miles. And that's what Paul is now doing. He's answering their questions. One of the questions they had, I'm going to answer three questions today. One of the questions they had is what happens to Christians when they die? They had been raised as pagans. They had lived as pagans. Ancient paganism had a radically different worldview of the afterlife. And so they want to know what happens When Christians die and they're worried about loved ones who have died in Christ, what happens to them? If Jesus comes, 
uh, will they get to go with him? And so Paul's answering those questions now for him. I want to answer this question because we all ought to want to know. If we died today, what would happen? Where would we be? What would we see? And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, sleep in the Bible is a metaphor. It's a euphemism of death. They haven't literally fallen asleep like they're so tired they took a nap. They have died. He's answering this question now. What happens to them? I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Listen, we sorrow as Christians when a loved one dies in Christ, but Paul says we don't sorrow as though we have no hope. We're going to see our loved ones again someday. He wants to comfort them with this. They lived in a world of tears and trials and pain and death, not unlike the world we live in, where whether you want to or not, you're going to say goodbye to people you love. You're going to go to their funeral or they're going to go to yours. And Paul wants to comfort us with these words of knowing death is not the end. It is only the beginning. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They're asking if Jesus returns, we know those of us that are alive will go to heaven with him, but what about those that have died? Will Jesus forget them? And Paul says, no. In fact, they're going to precede us. He's going to rise them from the dead. And look what he says now. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So what are we learning? Listen very carefully. Today, when a Christian dies, their body goes into the grave, but their soul goes immediately to heaven in God's presence. I'm telling you that because some people teach something called soul sleep. They see these uh, passages in Bible. They don't realize that sleep is a euphemism of death. So what they teach is the body and soul goes in the grave. It is simply asleep. That's not true at all. It's not what Jesus was teaching. It's not what the New Testament teaches. What the New Testament teaches is if you know Jesus and today you die, your body will go into the grave, but your soul immediately goes into God's presence. Your soul will not spend one day in the grave. What is the soul? The soul is the real you. Uh, You have this outer shell called the body. One day it will return to dust. It is under Adam's curse. It is destined to one day die. It's going to grow old. It's going to get sick. And it is going to die. But you will not die because you are more than simply a body of flesh and bones and hormones. You're an image bearer of God, born again as a child of God, by faith in the Son of God. Your soul then is the eternal part of you, and your soul immediately goes into God's presence. Now, Paul was in Corinth while he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. What's he doing in Corinth? The same thing he did in Thessalonica. He is discipling these new believers. He's planting a church there. And just like he's writing a letter to Thessalonian Christians, he later will write a letter to the Corinthian Christians, and he will give more detail to what he's telling the Thessalonians right here. Look what he says, the letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. Look at what he says. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now you have another metaphor here. It's a tent. Paul uses a tent as a metaphor for the body. And it's a really good metaphor. Because think about it, nobody thinks living in a tent forever 
would be a good idea. Like, I have tent camped, and I have realized that I am not a very good Christian when I have spent the night in a tent. I'm just being honest. They are not meant to live in very long. I'm good for a night, and I am done. <laughs> so I went down to Niangua this past week with my uh, youngest son. Niangua in southern Missouri, Little River. We have float and fished for 20 years, kind of a family tradition we stumbled on two years and years ago. So my youngest son and I, were doing our float this week, and we're kind of reminiscing all day long as we're floating down the river together, and we're fishing for trout. And uh, in those early years, I would tent camp. And uh, together we would put up a tent, and if your marriage can survive that, it can survive anything, <laughs> really. Go on a flow trip if you're not sure you should get married. By the end of it, you'll know. <laughs> Amen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's 95 degrees out. You're putting the tent up. You don't really know what you're doing because you don't do it very often. There's always a missing part, missing piece, and, you know, it's 95 degrees, 95% humidity. You're drenched in sweat. You go to bed, it's midnight, it's still 95 degrees, 95% humidity, drenched in sweat. You're just lying there in your own sweat. You're lying there on this air mattress and you can hear it losing air. <laughs> you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, you're not on the air mattress, you are flat on your back, on the ground. I'm telling you guys, tents are not meant to be lived in very long. I realize I'm not a good Christian when I spend the night in a tent. I'm not a very good dad the next day. I'm just a better Christian, I'm a better dad when I spring for a cabin <laughs> with air conditioning, a hot shower, and a soft bed. Amen, anyone? Yeah, yeah, I'm just telling you. That's, 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 I'm telling you. Here's the point Paul's making. Tents are not meant to be lived in very long. See, it's a really good metaphor of the body. Tents aren't a place of comfort. That's why he says we groan in this tent. Listen, if you haven't started groaning at all in your tent, it's because you have not lived very long at all. <laughs> because these bodies are under Adam's curse. That's why eventually they were out. Eventually they get old. They're under, under the curse. And for many of us, listen, our tent pegs are coming up. The seams are starting to fray. You know who they are. <laughs> I've heard it said, and it's true, every single man, eventually, you're going to get a diagnosis you never wanted. You're going to get a debilitating diagnosis you never wanted. You're going to get out of the shower one day, and you're going to realize you have a disease. It's called furniture disease, because you realize your chest has fallen into your drawers. You know I'm telling the truth, yes, you do. <laughs> Your tent is wearing out. Now, it doesn't mean you can't slow it down. Yes, slow it down, eat healthy, live healthy, but you can't stop it. Eventually, you're going to groan in this tent under Adam's curse, but that is not the end. You're simply going to get redeemed from this tent that is cursed by sin, the wages of sin being death, and that means mortality will be swallowed up by life. Now, he goes on here. He says, now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Check it out. The moment you receive the Son of God, you also receive the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is your guarantee of heaven eternally. Good thing it doesn't depend on you because you would lose your salvation first time you sin. No, it depends solely on him. 
Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. It's the Spirit of God that seals your salvation. It is not you hanging on to God. It's now God who hangs on to you. And that's why he serves as a, a guarantee. Now he goes on. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please rather, look at what he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's coming a day, if Jesus does not come and he delays, that you will die and your soul will leave your body. But do you understand, when you finally get redeemed from this tent and you're no longer living in there, you are instantly going to be at home with the Lord, present in his very place. Glory be to God. You can see why Paul's writing these early Christians with death everywhere. Death is all around them. He's saying, no, Jesus said, remember what Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. You're meant to live eternally. Death was never meant to be a part of your human experience personally. God told Adam, the father of us all, don't eat of that tree, and the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Romans 5 and verse 12, for as by one man's sin, Adam, death entered the world, so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. But did you know there is another Adam in the Bible? Not the first Adam, the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, and God will complete in the last Adam what he would have in the first Adam. No, God will have a kingdom of image bearers that live forever. Jesus said, God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's what's at stake, life or death. Jesus is life. Don't have Jesus, it's death. It's eternal death. When Jesus returns, the bodies of those who have died in Christ will rise from the grave to be reunited with their souls. What happens? When Jesus returns for the bride of Christ, we're gonna talk about that in just a minute, the graves of those who have died in Christ are gonna be open. I say this every single time, I officiate a graveside ceremony of somebody who I know is a believer. I remind everybody there, one day this grave is gonna be open and the body that comes out of the grave is not the same body that went in the grave. Paul would give more detail and depth to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that he says now to the Thessalonians of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he says, some of us that are alive will be changed instantly from mortal to immortal, but those that have died will be raised first. And check it out. He says, they will come back to life with a resurrected body a different body. The one that goes in the grave, Paul says, is perishable. It'll come out imperishable. The body that went into the grave is corruptible. It will come out incorruptible. The body that went into the grave was mortal under sin's curse. The one that comes out of the grave is immortal. It'll be the body of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, a body that never grows old, gets sick or die. You're gonna live forever. Amen. Glory be to God. You say, Phil, that's so far away. I can't find a lot of comfort in it because I, I mean, I'm glad we got the sweet by and by, but I live in the nasty now and now. <laughs> Listen, the way you get through the nasty now and now, and there is a lot of nasty. A lot of us are going through some really hard things. 
You want to know how you get through it? You don't focus on the pain. You focus on the prize. You need to focus on the long view, not simply the short view. And that's what God has given the Thessalonians, going through a horrible trial, tribulation, persecution. He's saying, guys, the way you get through the nasty now and now is you focus on the finish line. You focus on the destination, and it will be here sooner than you think. Now, he goes on, he says this in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This catching away, uh, caught up. There's going to be a generation of Christians that never feel the sting of death. They will be alive when Jesus returns. And now Paul's dealing with them. What happens? We are instantly caught up in the air, caught up in the clouds to meet them in the air, having never, ever died. It's commonly called the rapture of the church. And he's answering questions now about the rapture, the next major event prophetically on God's timeline of prophetic events is, in fact, the rapture of the church. What is the rapture? Listen carefully. The rapture is where Christ returns for his bride. The second coming is when Christ returns with his bride. The prophets would use the term the day of the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament, you see this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a reference to the second coming of Christ, but it's not simply a singular day. The day of the Lord is days. It, it, it is all the events from the rapture of the church to the seven-year tribulation prophesied those seven years shortly before the second coming. All of that is the day of the Lord. And what you have is the rapture where Jesus comes for his bride that you and I, the church, then you have seven years of tribulation, and then you have Jesus coming back with the church, Revelation 19 and verse 11. What does this mean for you and me? It means we are the betrothed bride of Christ. Now to understand everything that Jesus wants us to, we have to lose this 21st century non-Jewish mindset. Remember, we have a Jewish Messiah. We're studying a Jewish book primarily to Jewish followers and Jewish disciples. And the reason so much goes over the top of our head is because we think like a 21st century non-Jewish Christian. We have to get back in the mindset of Jesus' followers who were primarily Jewish. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, verse 1. The night before he died, he said these words, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now listen carefully. If you're a first century Jew, those words would mean something completely different than what they just meant to me and you. Those are the words of a Jewish bridegroom. And the last words he would say to his bride-to-be, they were the words of the ketubah ceremony. The ketubah was a written covenant, a contractual agreement as a Jewish bridegroom would propose to that young Jewish bride-to-be. The ketubah was actually the written vows. Just like now at a wedding, we exchange vows. The ketubah would be the written vows, the promises the bridegroom was making to that bride-to-be. And if she received the proposal, they would formally be betrothed. 
and they would sign that ketubah. Did you know that we have a ketubah from a Jewish bridegroom? It's called the New Testament. And one of the vows he has made in that ketubah is found in Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is a bridegroom that's going to keep coming after you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to divorce you. You see, it's a covenant, not a contract. Now, here's what happened. At the ketubah ceremony, once it was signed and they were formally betrothed, the last words he would say, I go away to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And every single one of his Jewish followers that night would have instantly understood he is speaking as a Jewish bridegroom. He's talking about a bride. And do you understand what happens when Jesus ascended back into heaven? He did indeed go to his father's house where he is preparing a bridal chamber, where he is preparing a room for you. And the rapture of the church is where Jesus comes for his bride to carry us back to his father's house as he promised. And do you understand that bride-to-be would not know when the groom was coming back. She simply had to be ready. She had to be expecting. She had to be radiant. She had to be prepared because she knew one day her bridegroom was returning. She did not know when. He would be away at times for weeks or months or even years as he was preparing a bridal chamber at his father's house. And only the father knew when. You see, Jesus said, only the Father knows, Acts chapter 1, when I will return, because only the Father of the bridegroom could say, Son, it is time to go get your bride and bring her back to my house. And there is coming a day the Father's going to look at the Son and say, Son, go get your bride and bring her back to my house. Three stages of a Jewish wedding were in the first, the betrothal stage. And while she was betrothed, she would keep herself ready in virtue, in integrity, protecting her chastity. Because she didn't know when the groom was reappearing. It could be today. And now you know what Paul meant when he said these words in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He, he was afraid the, the bride of Christ in Corinth would commit spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery. And do you realize every single time as the bride of Christ that we flirt with sin or we sleep with sin, we are committing spiritual infidelity on our bridegroom. James 4 and verse 4, the words are graphic. The apostle James said, adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Quit flirting with the world. Quit flirting with sin is cheating on him. And that's why Paul expresses the heart of the bridegroom, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Listen carefully, Jesus is not jealous of you, but he is jealous over you. In the same way, I am jealous over my wife, and she is jealous over me. I'm not jealous of her, but I am jealous over her. I want her affection to be only to me. I do not want to share her with another lover. 
And for some of us here, we love Jesus. We just have lots of other lovers. And you know how he feels when he sees you giving your heart and affection to all these other lovers, all these counterfeit lovers, every single time you sin. He's jealous over you in the very same way. Look, if today a handsome young man shows up at my porch after I get home from church and he's got a bouquet of flowers in his hand and he knocks on the door and I open the door and this handsome young man says, hey, Phil, um, I'm here to take your wife on a date. Now, I promise we're not going to sleep together. We'll probably just make out a lot and we'll, we'll have a good time. But, but don't worry, we're not going to sleep together. I just got to tell you up front, I'm being perfectly honest, it ain't Pastor Phil he's going to get. <laughs> I'm going SWAT cop. I'm just being honest with you. I'm saying, hey, baby, hey, Krista, call 911. There is about to be blood. You think I'm kidding? No, I'm jealous over her. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll resort to violence. You think my wife, my wife, oh, Krista, she's just this little quiet church mouse. No, trust me, she, she, she's, she can be violent. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, we have a right as spouses, husbands and wives, to be jealous over one another. Not jealous of, but jealous of. in the same way God does not want you to give your love and affection to another lover. He wants your love solely unto him. He is a bridegroom, and we're the betrothed bride of Christ. And I pray that one day when Jesus comes for the bride at abundant life, he will find a chaste virgin bride that we will have our chastity theologically, that we will have our chastity and purity philosophically, that we will find a chaste virgin bride when he looks at you and looks at me. For we have not given our heart to the things of the world. We have reserved our heart solely unto him as long as we both shall live. You see, we should be preparing to see Jesus by pursuing a life that is holy and living for the things of eternity. Are you living in view of eternity? The things of this world is fleeting. They do not last forever. But the things that really matter are the things that last forever. It is the word of God, the souls of men. Are you living in such a way as to invest the word of God into the souls of men? And if you're not, you're not ready for the appearing of the bridegroom. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. This ought to be encouraging. It ought to be comforting. They're going through this time of tears and trials and pain and death, and, and this world is still 2,000 years later full of tears and trial and pain and death. And Paul says we ought to find this comforting. The last question he answers is why is this comforting? Well, if you don't know Jesus, it's not comforting. No, there's no good news, only bad news. If you don't know Jesus, this world is as close as you will ever get to heaven. But if you do know Jesus, this world is as close as you will ever get to hell. Oh, this is comforting. Can I tell you why? Because very soon there will be no more sin. And where there is no sin, there is no sickness. No sadness, no death, no destruction, no darkness, 
no depression. The Bible comes full circle. It ends where it began. Paradise lost, paradise regained. The curse of sin reversed for every man, every woman. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, finally. Finally. The question is, are you ready? Have you placed your faith personally in what Jesus did at Calvary when he hung on that cross and he took all of your sin, all of your shame, every single stain, the sinless son of God became sin for us. Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, you have no peace with God. You're still the enemy of God because sin is making war on God. We've all made war on God. But God sent a peace offering the sinless Son of God. Would you bow with me right now, every head bowed, every eye closed, wherever you're watching from in the world, every other campus, church houses around the country. Just have a quiet moment of introspection. And ask yourself this question, am I ready? If my heart beat one last time, If I lay my head on my pillow one last time and I close my eyes in time and I open them up in eternity, do I know what I would see? Do I know where I would be? If you don't know for sure today that your destination is heaven, sweet friends, that can change. Right here, right now. Wherever you are in the world right now, I want to pray with you. If you're not certain today where you would be, I want you to pray this with me. In the quietness of this moment, God will hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sin. He'll invite you into his family, his kingdom. Pray with me right now. Jesus, say, Jesus, I know that I've sinned. And that I'm separated from heaven. But I believe you died for my sin. That you rose again. That you're alive today. And one day you're going to return. And today I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. And change me from within. Make me a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.